Welcome to the podcast of the Consortium for History of Science, Technology, and Medicine. I'm Bob Akashrafi. Today is July 3rd, 2020, and I'm speaking with John Jackson, who is professor of the History, Philosophy, and Sociology of Science at Michigan State University. He works on the history and philosophy of the scientific study of race. Thank you for joining us, John. Thank you for having me. John, in other episodes in this series, we've talked about the history of race science. How did the 19th century traditions of race science fare as anthropology and biology developed through the 20th century? It's a great question. Let's think about the world, particularly in the United States, 120 years ago. 1900. In terms of race, everybody knows race. Everybody sees it. You live this life, not just in the Jim Crow South, where of course it's embedded in the law, but also in the big northern cities where not only do you see race in black and white, but you see Italians are a race, Jews are a race, the Irish are a race. Everybody's a race. So one thing that science did at this time was you just, you know that race is real. You can see it. And the question then is, What's the proper cataloging? What's the taxonomy? How many races are there? Which one is it? And it's strange in that you can pick any number you want from 2 to 30 in 1900, and you can find a scientist who says, yeah, that's how many races there are. It's just a mess, scientifically speaking. How do you determine what a race is? How do you get the proper number of races? Those are the questions that in physical anthropology, anthropologists who are interested in measuring the human body, particularly skeletons, that's what they're interested in finding out. How do you do that as a biologically informed scientist? So by 1900, certainly by 1910, everybody's a Darwinian of one kind or another. Everybody believes Darwin had it right. There's arguments about exactly how the mechanisms work. But everybody thinks species get their forms through some sort of evolutionary process. Well, one thing evolution tells you is that, look, species aren't fixed things. They're on the move. They're always changing. It now takes a long time, but they're always on the move. Take that idea and take the race idea. The race idea says races are fixed. Races are permanent. Races are ancient. Well, how do you hold those two ideas at the same time if you are a scientist? So the place you study physical anthropology in the first third of the 20th century was at Harvard University, and your mentor is a man named Ernst Hutton. And Hutton came up with this idea, which was not originally his, but really nailed this down, that race is defined by traits of the human body that are non-adaptive. That is, Darwinian selection works on things that give an advantage in a given environment, and over generations, that adaptation builds up, and that's how organisms have the forms they do. Hooten has this idea that he's borrowing from other people. Ah, if we want to figure out what the races are, we need to focus on things like the shape of the skull, thickness of the lips, form of the hair, length of the limbs. And you can see I'm adding more and more traits. Hooten in the 20s is writing these long, long lists of anatomical traits, mostly skeletal. How much does the radius, which is in your forearm, right? Your forearm has two bones, the radius and the ulna. What's the ratio of the bowing between that? What's the ratio of the humerus bone, which is the upper arm, right? The one that attaches to your shoulder. What's that ratio to the ratio of the length of your thigh? You keep piling on these. It must have been incredibly tedious work to work in Hooten's lab. 
But the problem is, the more traits you pile on, the less likely you are to find a reliable taxonomy that divides people into the world. That's not how science is supposed to work. Science is supposed to say, if you get better tools, you get better answers. And what's happening in race is you're getting better tools and your answers are getting worse. So one thing is that this, this program of focusing on non-adaptive traits to identify races collapsing more or less. It's dogged. It stays there for a while, but it's not getting us anything. The other thing that's going on in anthropology is uh, the result of a Jewish-German emigre named Franz Boas, B-O-A-S, who comes to this country and founds the anthropology department at Columbia University in New York City. And for a while, Columbia and Harvard are these great rivals. Boaz is an incredibly sticky scientific researcher, and he basically makes the argument that you haven't proven anything, Ernst Hutton and, and that school. You haven't shown us anything. We can't assent to this program of study. And he does work in physical anthropology that takes something like the shape of the skull, which was, which was really seen as one of the gold standards for racial markers, oval-skulled people versus round-skulled people. And he shows that in a generation, the shape of the skull can change. Well, that's no pathway to stable race concepts, right? If in one generation, he looks at the children of immigrants from European countries. Other thing he does, Boaz, is he gives us what is then called the culture concept. This idea that culture is universal. Everybody has a culture. They're all different. They're all different, and they have to be understood on their own terms. I always like to point my students to a uh, quotation by one of Boaz's students, Alexander Goldenweiser, in 1922, in one of his books says, the old way of thinking taught us that humans are of many types, civilization is of one type. And what he meant by that was this old school of thought was civilizations are good or bad. European civilization, obviously the best. There's, that's what civilization is. Stuff that these other people around the globe have, that's not civilization. And it's because the people there are different from the people of Europe. So the first half of Goldenweiser's point is the old school was humans come in many types. I'm paraphrasing. Civilization, only one type. Boaz and his students taught the exact opposite. People are all the same. Civilizations are many. So the assumption of Boazian anthropology, simply because you haven't proven otherwise, is let's assume we're all the same. In different environments, we're going to build different kinds of culture. And each of them works on their own terms. And what that does is it separates this idea that civilization is the product of racial types. So Boaz really shifts the burden of proof is, is what he does. He says, look, race scientists, you go about your business trying to prove races exist. You haven't done it so far. In the meantime, we're going to just say, well, as a working assumption, everybody's basically the same. What kind, of, what kind of civilizations do they build? What kind of cultures do they build? And that takes the steam out of a lot of race science. So that's kind of the first attack on 19th century science in 20th century. The other attack comes from the rise of population genetics in late 1930s, early 1940s. Population genetics comes out of what uh, historians call, and those at the time called the modern synthesis, which took Darwinian evolutionary theory and merged it with genetic theory and saw how they worked together. People like Theodosis Dubchansky, who was a Russian emigrate who comes to this country. And what population genetics says is, Hooten and that school and most race scientists focused on the body, focused on the morphology, the appearance of the body. and population geneticists took away from that and said, let's focus on the genotype. So we need to focus away from the body, right? The phenotype. We all probably learned this word in high school, right? The phenotype is the body, what it appears to be. The genotype is the gene, 
what's inside what we now know is DNA. They did not know it was DNA until the 1950s. So he borrows this word population from demography. Demography, of course, the study of human populations, right? The, the demographic characteristics of the population of the United States. How What's the average age? All that kind of thing. Population genetics focuses on populations identified by genotypes. So it's a statistical concept that says a population is a group of organisms within a species, a group of organisms that breed more with each other than they do with people outside their populations. And for Dobchansky, this was part of his theory of speciation. How do we get species? Well, we get them through populations that if they're isolated reproductively from other organisms of their species for long enough, that population will turn into a different species. Very Darwinian. So what does this mean for morphology and the old way of studying race? Dobchansky says there, this old-fashioned notion of race by how your body looks is wrong. Populations are where it's at. And he works closely with an anthropologist named Ashley Montague. And he and Montague have this argument. And the argument is as follows. Dobchansky says, if we want to reach the public, if we want to get rid of racism, we've got to teach them some good genetics theory and teach them that races are populations. Right? Populations have some reality to them that this concept that everyday common sense notion of race that everybody has is not real. Populations are real. Montague wants to say, you're absolutely right. They work together. They publish papers together, Montague and Dubchansky. You're absolutely right, but let's not use this word race. Let's use the word ethnic group. Ethnic group captures this culture concept much better. Let's not use the word race to refer to populations. And Dubchansky wanted to take back the word race from the racists and use the word race to refer to populations. Dobchansky's argument was, look, Ashley Montague, if you call these things ethnic groups, the racists are just going to borrow that and say, okay, well, let's not let these ethnic groups into the country, or let's make sure the, these ethnic groups can't, it doesn't get you anywhere. Montague's point is, this word race has too much baggage. Remember, this is right after World War II. Racism has a very negative connotation it did not have before World War II. But the point is, both scientists agreed that when you use the word race and you point to a genetic population, you're pointing to the exact opposite thing that you were pointing at under this Hutonian tradition. Hutton said races are defined by non-adaptive characters. Dobchansky's population concept says, ah, well, no, populations get the way they are because they're adapting to the environment. So they're temporary, they're on the move, they're statistical. So it is a much different concept. And how that translated then in subsequent generations, I guess, is where we need to go next. Should we, after that history and after the stigma of the experience of World War II, can we now think of scientific racism as being behind us, as being a phenomena of our past? No. Unfortunately, we can't relegate scientific racism to the dustbin of history for, for a couple reasons. One, let's start with order, right? So we have this culture concept that so, supposedly separates biological race from society, from culture, from civilization. But what can happen easily is that if you simply define social culture as unassimilatable, then racism operates the exact same way. And we see this today, right? We see this among the American right when they point to something like Muslim emigration. Muslims, their culture does not allow them to assimilate into American culture. 
Hence, we should keep immigration restrictions up against Muslim countries because they cannot change to become real Americans. Same thing was said about Jews for a hundred years ago, substitute Jew for Muslim. It's the same argument. You don't really need the biology here. You just need to claim that these cultures are unassimilatable to what you can't see it, but I'm using air quotes, American culture. So that's one problem, is that racism is adapting to these concepts. The other problem is that both Montague and Dubchansky were right. We can see that Dubchansky's criticism against the use of the word ethnic groups, well, you know, it works the same as racism. Dubchansky would say, ha ha, told you so. Montague would say to Dubchansky, but look what's happening to your culture. Look what's happening to the, to the notion of population genetics. What you see today are people who want to prove that race is real simply using the language of population genetics. We have computer programs, networking programs, that study genes and can cluster genetic relationships into time. In 2014, Nicholas Wade is a New York Times science writer, and he wrote this terrible book called Troublesome Inheritance, where he points to these programs, I think he points to the one that's called Structure, and says, aha, see, Structure found five different continental populations, just like the old school 19th century anthropologists claimed there were five one from Africa, one from Europe, one from Asia, and then the Americas and, you know, Oceania. Aha! You see, modern genetics proves ancient racial typologies, 150-year-old racial typologies, is true. So that's what Montague would say back. And it takes a great deal of careful explanation to point out that, look, structure found five. Actually, it didn't. It found six in the study that Wade is referring to. Because you ask it to. You say... Cluster these populations into N number, whatever number you are interested in. These programs, population genetics, is not interested in classifying humans or any other organism into taxonomic categories. It's interested in finding out evolutionary histories. So whatever number you decide helps you understand evolution, or in the case of, of humans, epidemiology, diseases, that's the number you would put in. None of those numbers are any more real than any other number you would choose. So racism is very adaptive because it simply takes whatever you throw at it and kind of sucks it up and reformats it and bends it and twists it and often breaks it until you get the same old arguments that we've had for, I don't know, 150 years, 120 years, something like that. So unfortunately, racism is alive and well and can be used in the sciences as easily as it can anyplace else. We've been talking about the sciences, and you've been telling us how the science of race has changed. What's been the relationship between the sciences and with public understandings of race? In some ways, I have a depressing job in that, you know, I teach classes on scientific racism and racist ideologies and things like that. My students come into class on day one, and they tell me race is a social construction. And then they sit back and say, well, we're done. It's a very common phrase. It's one you hear quite a lot. The problem is they don't know really what that means. <laughs> they don't know what is a social construction versus something that's not a social construction. And they think, and often people like Nicholas Wade or other people who are interested in recapitulating these old racial categories, 
pit science against social construction, right? And kind of Nicholas Wade's line and, and others who follow that kind of thinking is, oh, you're rejecting science when you say race is a social construction. Ashley Montague, who is often pointed to as kind of the villain who started Social Scientist, one of the book where he expounds on this, goes through six editions, the first one in 1942, the last one in 1999, and they point to him and say, oh, he's anti-science, not even realizing that Montague's idea that race was a myth comes out of the science. It comes out of population genetics. And so you get this kind of false dichotomy between social construction of race and science, which is not at all the case. In fact, if anything, we learn from these early population geneticists and the anthropologists who, who took up them, people like Sherwood Washburn, very, probably the man who brought genetics into modern biological anthropology. Washburn simply said, this is a pragmatic concept. How many races do you, how many divisions of, of humanity do you need? in order to understand our evolutionary history. That's the number you should use. It's not a real number. It's one we use for particular purposes. And obviously, we still live in a very race-conscious society. Obviously, all this talk about population genetics and things like that don't change the conditions under which the country is operating as much as we hoped, much as Boaz hoped 100 years ago, much as Montague hoped 60, 70 years ago. Clearly, institutional racism and the structural racism, which the sociologists have been telling us about for 50 years or so, still is incredibly oppressive in this country. And if we're going to make progress, we need to have more attention paid to social science disciplines like sociology, like criminology, and things like that, which work under the idea that race is a social construction in order to lay bare systems of oppression that continually operate in this country. If we pursue that a little bit more, and if we try to keep in mind the kind of history you've been telling us and the events in the United States in the last month or so in the protests, what kinds of insights does this history offer on these recent events, or what kinds of questions should it be raising for us now? Yeah, over the past month, month and a half during these protests, I think back to a sociologist who figured heavily in my first book, Social Scientists for Social Justice. He was named Alfred McClung Lee, L-E-E. -E. And he, in 1943, while we were fighting World War II, an enormous disturbance broke out in Detroit. 34 people were eventually killed. Alfred McClung Lee at the time was working at Wayne State University. And he ran out into these protests picture in my head is he runs out into these and he has a notebook and he's just taking notes and interviewing people and trying to find out what's going on. And eventually he publishes a book uh, that same year called Race Riot. And Lee says in that book, the so-called riot was started because of rumors. It was a hot summer day. Rumors were that the police had killed a black child and things just escalated. And Lee's point in the book was it wasn't that trigger, right? It wasn't the proximate event of this rumor about police use of deadly force. It was thousands of things. It was thousands of things built up over time in this incredibly segregated and oppressive city filled with economic, even in the 40s, right, economic distress that hits black communities much harder than white communities. There's no one thing. If we want to solve this problem, we need systematic, large-scale commitments to changing the way people live. And this is 1943, and you can find these same sorts of arguments made in the teens, in the 20s, in the 40s, in the 60s. 
Psychologists and sociologists have been telling us for a century, look, the tragic killing of these people by police, and since the past 30, 40 years, it's been police violence that has triggered this. Yes, the police need to be reformed, but society needs to commit, make real this promise, and it hasn't yet. And so what I see over and over again is, is kind of depressing in that my students have been walking into my classrooms for 30 years now saying, Ah, racist social construction, problem solved. And I also hear this from my students. Yes, older generations, they were racist. Our generation, we're not. Well, you hear that for 30 years from your students, you know that something's going on. Something systematic is going on. Because those first students I had are now all grown up, and it doesn't seem like we've made a whole lot of progress on this front. And what we need is a real commitment from the country to really do something about this. And to the extent that people who enroll science to blame black people rather than society, to the extent that they enroll racial realism as an explanation for black poverty, for example, which happens all the time among that crowd, we just, as historians, need to point out this is what they said after World War I. This is what they said during Jim Crow. There is nothing new here. This is the same old argument, and it has accomplished nothing. And that's what I see kind of my role as when I look at kind of modern day scientific racism is just to say, there's nothing new here. This is a zombie walking around. It's about time somebody cuts its head off. Thank you, John. Thank you for sharing your work and your perspectives with us. Thank you for having me and thank you for your interest. This has been a podcast from the Consortium for History of Science, Technology, and Medicine, and I'm Jessica Linker, a program coordinator at the Consortium. You can find other podcasts, video lectures, archival spotlights, as well as opportunities to connect to our community of scholars at chstm.org. This podcast is made possible with the generous support of the Pew Charitable Trusts, the Andrew W. Mellon Foundation, and the Rita Allen Foundation.